Welcome and thank you very much for joining us tonight for what promises to be a very exciting event. My name is Dennis Rogers. I'm a senior research fellow at the University of Manchester and a research associate here at the LSE with the Crisis State Research Centre, which along with the LSE's Development Studies Institute and the Department of Social Policy is one of the sponsors of tonight's panel on the fiction of development. <coughs> now the origins of this panel lie in an academic paper co-written by myself and David Lewis as well as Michael Woolcock of the World Bank in which we discuss and consider our dissatisfaction with the hierarchy that exists um, concerning the forms of knowledge about the world that are considered valid within the discipline of development studies. Now those seen as authoritative are rather limited in scope. Basically it tends to include academic monographs, often badly written, policy reports, certainly very boring, and pretty much anything to do with numbers, often mathematical mystification. But generally, they do not include the novels and other works of literary fiction that are arguably the way that most of the world really engages with the issues of development. As Lord Byron poetically put it, but words are things and a small drop of ink falling like dew upon a thought produces that which makes thousands, perhaps millions, think. But the importance of literary fiction goes beyond simply communicating a message more effectively. As Anthony Giddens, a former director of the LSE, has pointed out, literary style is not irrelevant to the accuracy of social descriptions, because the social sciences often draw upon the same source of description, mutual knowledge of the world as novelists or others who write fictional accounts of social life. And indeed, this actually works both ways. Consider, for example, the opening epigraph of Rohinton Mystery's powerful Booken Prize-nominated novel, A Fine Balance, which is one of the most striking depictions of poverty in India to have been written in the past 20 years. And it opens in the following way. Holding this book in your hand, Sinking back in your soft armchair, you will say to yourself, perhaps it will amuse me. And after you have read this story of great misfortunes, you will no doubt dine well, blaming the author for your own insensitivity, accusing him of wild exaggeration and flights of fancy. But rest assured, this tragedy, this novel, is not a fiction. All is true. So the line between literature and the social sciences can therefore be said to be very fine. And the issue of what we can learn from fictional accounts of development is, in the opinion, certainly my opinion, the opinion of this panel, worth exploring. I mean, as a Roman poet Horace pointed out 2,000 years ago, the role of literature has historically always been not only to delight, but also to teach. And our panel tonight is ideal to help us renew our consciousness of this aspiration. Now it includes, at the far end, David Lewis, who is Professor of Social Policy and Development here at the LSE. He researches development policy issues in South Asia, in particular in Bangladesh, and he has published numerous articles and books on the subject. Now these have not, as yet, included a novel, but he has produced three CDs of acoustic singer-songwriter music. Second on my right here is Giles Foden, 
who is, of course, very well known as the author of the acclaimed Last King of Scotland, a novel set during Idi Amin's rule of Uganda in the 1970s, which won the Whitbread First Novel Award, a Somerset Morgan, Morgan Award, a Betty Trask Award, and the Winifred Holtby Memorial Prize. Now, he has since published several other novels, partly inspired by his experiences of growing up in Central and East Africa, and also works as a journalist. And in 2007, he was appointed Professor of Creative Writing at the University of East Anglia. Sunni Singh was born in Varanasi in India and grew up all over the world. She is the author of several novels, including Nanny's Book of Suicide, which has been described as a first novel of rare scope and power. Sunny is also a playwright and a journalist and also teaches creative writing at London Metropolitan University. And her last novel, recently published, is titled With Krishna's Eyes. Finally, Jack Mapanju is a poet and the author of numerous collections, including Chameleons and Gods and the Chattering Wagtails of Mikuyu Prism, which he wrote while imprisoned without trial or charge in Malawi between 1987 and 1991. He now lives here in the UK, in York, and teaches creative writing and literatures of incarceration in the University of Newcastle upon Tyne's School of English. Now each of the panelists will talk for about 10 minutes each, providing us with our ideas and insights as to the contribution that literary fiction can have for our understanding of development. And after that, we will open up for debate and comment. Finally, after some exchange and interaction, the event will be followed by a drinks reception. And I've been also asked to say that there will be books by Giles and by Jack on sale outside. And they are both have indicated they are willing to sign the books, if you so wish. So without further ado, let me give it one to David Lewis. Okay, shall I do it from down here, or shall I go up there? In the mic. Okay. Can you hear me okay? Okay, well, um, as the co-author of the paper that... Can you hear me now? Let me go over there. Yeah, so as one of the co-authors of the paper on fiction of development, um, I'd like to begin by just talking a little bit about some of the issues and themes that we, that we raise in the paper to set the scene for the discussion that's going to follow. Um, our aims in the paper were fairly modest. We, we didn't want to try to set up a sort of relativist position and claim that literary forms of representation can substitute for academic or policy writing. Nor did we want to start to construct a case for certain literatures being more or less authentic voices from the developing world. What we were trying to do, really, with the paper was to, to suggest that practitioners and academics in the field of development should be more open to and inclusive of the sorts of representations, fictional representations, within the scope of what they consider to be proper representations of development. And of course, for many people outside the field of development, none of this really is a surprise. It's, it's all fairly obvious, I think, to lots of people. But I think to us, it wasn't. Um, but we're obviously not the first people to engage with this. Uh, Louis Kosa wrote a book over 40 years ago, the US uh, 
sociologist. He wrote a very interesting book called Sociology Through Literature, which was an innovative introduction to the main themes of sociology that drew on classic novels to illustrate those. And he pointed out that literature should have a, should have a complementary relationship to social science. But he also said that social scientists have often felt that it's somewhat below their dignity you know, to show an interest in literature. And in fact, within social sciences, those, those texts which don't match up to standard representational forms are often marginalized or described as anecdotal. So what we're trying to do really is to, is to, is to is to begin a conversation around you know, development themes. And again, you know, there have been a few attempts to try to do this, and the World Bank's Voices of the Poor study in 2000 was an example of this that I think many people would agree it didn't go particularly well and hasn't been particularly influential. Um, but the kind of conversations that I think we're interested in starting are those which compare different kinds of texts, that uh, contrast or exchange uh, uh, between them. And I think that we, we also started from the position that there are some real problems with the forms of representation which we find in uh, development texts. And if one takes, you know, for example, this, this is the Sustainable Livelihoods Framework, which uh, many people who've been involved in the world of development policy will have come across over the last uh, you know, decade or so. I mean, this is a framework that attempts to represent the changing influences on the well-being of households, how they, they try to take decisions and use the resources that they have available to them, to try and advance in their own well-being, and also the ways in which institutions and politics and policies may either support or thwart uh, those efforts. It's, it's in many ways useful, but it's also inaccessible, it's inelegant, and it only captures part of reality. If you take a book like Rohinton Mysteries, A Fine Balance, it's really doing the same thing. It's an extremely well-written novel, basically about livelihoods and about you know, the struggles of, uh, of some characters who are from the untouchable uh, uh, status in India and their efforts to try and move from being leather workers to improve their livelihoods through uh, tailoring and about the different structural and institutional factors that make that very difficult. And what interested us was that a book like Fine Balance is not just a little niche novel that a few people might read. It's a novel uh, that by 2002 had sold over half a million copies in the US. And so therefore it has a much wider circulation than many of the academic texts or the policy texts you know, that we were looking at. Now, the complementarity one can extend in different ways. Uh, Timothy Mitchell's book, The Rule of Experts, is a critique of the way in which World Bank uh, projects in Egypt tend to construct the problems of poor people in Egypt very ahistorically, and it draws attention to the need 
to contextualise those within uh, you know, colonial history. If one looks at a novel like uh, The Map of Love, you can see how those two different texts, I think, provide you know, complementary and useful insights into the same kinds of issues. Uh, the Map of Love also you know, talks about, it's a love story which is woven into a history of British imperialism and an Egyptian uh, nationalism. So our article is really talking about trying to, to contrast in those different kinds of things. Here's another one. Most of my work um, has been on NGOs. I, I do a lot of research on NGOs. And this is a book uh, which I think is an excellent piece of, uh, of ethnographic investigation of how NGOs work in the Philippines. And one of the things that the author, uh, Dorothea Hillhorst, uh, does is that she talks about the way in which many researchers have only inadequately captured the realities of how NGOs work. They've tended to focus very much on the formal organizational aspects of NGOs. They haven't really looked at you know, the social dimensions of NGOs and the ways in which those organizational boundaries are constantly transgressed. And she begins her book you know, by saying, making those points about limitations of academic knowledge and contrasting them with this book, which is maybe unexpected, but um, Helen Fielding's novel is a light-hearted novel about, loosely, about um, Western agencies muddling through in the 1980s in famine in Ethiopia. And it's a, it's a novel that, according to Hillhorst, you know, does a better job of conveying the messy realities of life in an NGO than much of the academic research. So, um, there's one last uh, juxtaposition I just wanted to make as well. Another kind of conversation is that there are also interesting ways in which I think novels and bits of research speak to each other. And uh, Brick Lane, as I'm sure many, many people will probably know, was a successful novel written, been written a few years ago, um, which deals with issues of migration and gender between Bangladesh and UK, and it uh, contains uh, characters who work in the garment industry. And the author, Monica Ali, was working for a while as a proofreader at Verso, Press, who published another piece of academic research uh, by Nyla Kabir, looking at the lives of garment workers in the UK and Bangladesh. And it was through reading this academic work that you know, some of the ideas and you know, some of the influences you know, for Brick Lane emerged. So, um, you know, these two forms of writing, two forms of representation, I think. Um, have a way of reinforcing each other and of course contradicting each other too because, because the book like Brick Lane also raised a huge amount of controversy about how the, um, the communities uh, that it spoke about, you know, how they felt about that representation. So I'll just uh, conclude, you know, by saying that um, our argument here is not to say that we want to privilege one kind of representation or one kind of writing about the 
another, but we want to try and encourage social scientists to, you know, to take uh, more account of novels and fictional writing. And we would argue that fictional writing perhaps enjoys a freedom that academic writing doesn't, which is both a source of strength and a source of weakness. It doesn't have to rely on empirically grounded academic data. It can transcend you know, the limits of that. Um, and in doing that, it can also capture elements of social reality that may be ignored or depersonalized within academic or policy accounts. One of the strengths as well, I think, is that you know, fiction is in many ways more influential in uh, contributing to ideas about development within the wider public sphere. So therefore it has an importance also not just in the way that it represents reality, but also in the way that it uh, communicates and reaches people. So you know, the key issue then, I think, is not an either-or, but it's about evaluating these different kinds of texts and their authority and their representative power. Thank you. Um, I now call on Giles to respond and to give his impressions. I'm going to stay uh, sitting down if that's all right. Um, well, th th this is a, I found uh, the paper that my co-panelists wrote uh, absolutely fascinating, uh, and I, I certainly think they've they've got it right that this is a really interesting area, not just for um, those working in development, but also for novelists. Uh, and for me personally, it was fascinating. You know, my background uh, was gr growing up in Malawi and Tanzania, Uganda, uh, and various other places in Africa. My dad was a an agricultural economist. So I spent my childhood really in, in that arena of uh, uh, people, expats working in development. Now, and my books themselves could, some of them anyway, could be read in, in those terms. You could say that The Last King of Scotland is a chronicle of bad governance or, um, <coughs> or that Zanzibar um, tries to explain the, the roots of uh, Islamic fundamentalism on the East African seaboard. Uh, but I also think, and, and indeed I'm now writing a book with a, someone working in, in a uh, water resources charity in, in the Congo. So the, you know, these, these are things that I've thought about a good deal. And I, I, I do um, think that, that de development narratives, let's call them that, can provide a sort of framework for literary storytelling. Uh, and they're, but they're also sort of stories that I remember uh, that, that were really just a, f a function of development issues that I heard as a child, for instance. Um, I remember my father having to get two, during the 70s, uh, uh, two tankers of petrol up from South Africa through the frontline states to Malawi. And he was, uh, whatever one thinks about the politics surrounding that issue, it was a very difficult thing to do and people needed fuel in Malawi. Uh, and yet, as soon as the two tankers arrive, the, the minister, who's his boss, says, oh, I'll have one of those. And that, and, and that you know, had a kind of significant effect on the various agricultural projects my father worked in. All things uh, uh, 
like uh, um, one one of the reasons uh, Malawi fell into uh, fairly serious economic plight more recently was the selling off of government grain stores uh, and all, all these things can provide material for interesting stories that do characterize the development issues in, in particular countries. Uh, I also think more generally there are certain themes that are emerging in international fiction that are also big issues in development like the growth of uh, cities, spatiality generally, uh, social, you know, social conceptions of space, migration, water and of course latterly uh, climate change. Um, now those are useful material for novelists um, but there's also another side of it which is how far the skills associated with literary endeavours can be useful for those working in development and other fields and here the, this issue of narrative is, and, and of the image is very significant um, imagine that you're uh, uh, the mayor of a developing city um, and uh, somebody comes with, to you with a plan for a new way of conceiving the electricity system of that city you can get crunch all the numbers you like you can uh, get all the quantitative data but in the end that comes down to some experts presenting the mayor with a couple of sheets of paper and him having to make a decision between this way of doing it or the next way of doing it and each of those different ways is a kind of story and what often is persuasive seems to me uh, is not necessarily the quantitative data but the effectiveness of the story and how far that accurately uh, reflects the, um, <coughs> the sort of hard physical and uh, economic issues so storytelling can be useful for those working in development uh, I also think there's a kind of no number of themes that really emerge out of uh, uh, economic sociology environmentalism that are part of a new range of literary values um, if you think about the boom in non-fiction nature writing that we're currently experiencing uh, uh, or words like sustainability resilience, even development itself uh, these are things that novelists are interested in, they also are becoming part of the way that we interpret literature uh, as, as across the globe uh, new social formations are coming into place around these issues um, so well that's, that's just about uh, everything I've got to say um, but uh, right <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much Charles. Yes. Honey. Yeah, that's mine. Mm -hmm. okay um, I'm hoping that the mic is better now you're the measure so if you can't hear it tell me <laughs> well he's the one who nods so that's about it um, so I, hopefully you can hear me. I come to this table with sort of multiple hats. Um, and one of the hats that wasn't mentioned earlier is the fact that um, I have a very small NGO, very limited, that works in um, rural UP and Bihar in India. And we provide something quite specific. We 
we provide surgery for children from villages, but a very specific kind of surgery. There's something that the doctors in India call the poor man's heart disease, and that's the corollary of suffering rheumatic fever. Now, it leave, it, the surgery can cost as little as 250 pounds, and it can go up to about 400 pounds per child. And it's a fairly simple surgery, and yet it's practically unaffordable. Moreover, interestingly enough, because it doesn't sort of fit any box for um, education or primary medicine, et cetera, et cetera, it also falls through the cracks for development. So I come to this, this table with, with sort of multiple hats, that of a writer, but also of somebody who's involved in this. Um, and I agree with what Giles has said, and Dennis and David, obviously. Um, I think the conversation we are having now is a very important one. Um, I think fiction does provide um, a rather subjective view into um, issues regarding development, regarding all sorts of social issues. Um, for me, the most important phenomena are, that distinguishes, let's say, social sciences, the quantitative analysis that was so wonderfully put up on screen some time ago, um, and fiction is that often decisions regarding policy, um, whether it's about aid or it's about development plans, is made based on numbers. Now that means should uh, we dig a well or should we provide um, 10,000 malaria doses? There isn't really a way to decide because these are numbers. How do you choose? We have that problem um, constantly. Should we spend 400 pounds building a school building or should we s pay for one kid's surgery? Um, how do you balance that out? Now, those are kind of ethical decisions, ethical issues that um, we should be aware of, uh, or at least I feel that people in development should be aware of. But that isn't reflected in those fabulous flowcharts and those graphs and those quantitative analysis um, tables and so forth. Um, and I think fiction provides that worldview. It takes away the number and replaces it with a human being. This is not um, collateral damage. This is not a numbers game of how many people you helped in Haiti. These are human beings, and each life is important then. Um, and that also changes the ways you look at who's getting developed. Now, there's, that's first part of it. The flip side of it, like social sciences, and you always say, you know, there are caveats to the data, there are questions, you sort of wonder if it's biased, if it's not. Well, fiction does the same thing. How do you decide? Yes, you get a snapshot. Yes, you get a human being as opposed to a number. Whose human being? Whose story are you getting? Who's telling that story? And who hears it? And do you hear it because the person you want to be telling the story is telling the story? Now, all these are issues that I'm bringing to you. I don't have the answers, and I hope when we start talking, perhaps some of these questions will get raised and discussed. But these are things that, let's say, um, bias the fiction, that, that same sort of uh, problem that social science data has. I'll give you a simple example. Uh, most of you probably have uh, 
if you were on this planet, survived the slumdog millionaire craze last year. Um, Danny Boyle's Taravi is grotesque, poverty-stricken, desperate, violent, all of those things. And Taravi is that. Taravi is the slum where that, that movie was filmed. Taravi is also one of the entrepreneurial centers of India. It has single-handedly got one of the highest concentrations of small businesses in the country. Where is that spirit? People weren't wait, in Dharavi don't wait for who wants to be a millionaire to make them a millionaire. They work every day starting businesses to do it. That is also a reality. And unfortunately, no single piece of fiction is going to be able to give you that. Now, unfortunately or fortunately, that also means that um, for decision makers, ideally, or in an, at least in an ideal world, the responsibility is that people look at all sorts of data, far more data, and not only the data that you like, but also the data you don't like. And perhaps if social scientists, policymakers, decide to start using fiction as complementary to all the different um, informational sources that they, they would like to use, perhaps they would um, be swamped. Uh, how many novels will you read before you decide that, that the snapshot is an accurate one? Giles used a lovely term. He said, um, fiction can represent um, sort of how accurately the development reality. I don't know. Uh, for me, the reality from Slumdog Millionaire wasn't an accurate one. Um, I don't think there is possibly any way of reflecting that, um, either to fiction or through hard data. But I think those are questions we must ask ourselves, um, partially, and I think I will try to come back to this issue constantly. The decisions that are made about development impact not only you know, impact human beings, they impact a huge network of human beings. We know that for each surgery we fund, it changes not only that individual's life, but an entire network um, of people who are involved with that individual. Now, that also means we walk a very fine line in terms of how we approach it. Um, do cultural sensitivities matter? Um, should they matter? Should we care um, to take those issues into account? Should we take on the colonial legacy of the white man's burden and say, oh, look, we'll sort this one out for you? Or should we just step back and say, look, we will do it because you consent to let us do this. Um, as either an NGO leader or a writer, I don't have the answers. But these are questions that I ask myself. At the same time, I'm also acutely aware that whether we like it or not, the narratives of development, whether they are in bulk of fiction, popularly um, sold and familiar people who are, that are most fiction that people are familiar with, or for that matter social sciences. There is a certain kind of ideologically driven narrative and I'm not sure that helps us. Um, I'm not sure if we should be making those decisions. I'm not sure if we should be talking about corruption in Rwanda or in um, the Congo unless we're also willing to talk about um, the Suez Canal Agreement that decided that prices of oil are going to be different for East and West. 
should we also take up the account of dollar parity treatment for you know, a treaty which said way back after the Second World War that if you were in Africa and you wanted to set, develop your country, you first had to find dollars to buy the oil. You couldn't just sell your grain. Now, those are issues that I think we as writers should be taking up. Um, I'm not sure if social scientists, perhaps you work in more immediate circumstances, can or do. But I think those, if we are going to have this conversation, we should be talking about them. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. <coughs> um, I enjoyed reading this paper immensely. And um, when I was asked to come to the panel, I wondered how far I could go in reacting to it because I found myself saying a few rude things about this paper. Um, <clears throat> first of all, uh, LAC, what are you doing? I said, because this has been going on for some time. And um, I remember myself when I was a student next door a long time ago at UCL being invited by um, the VSOs to give talks on African culture and literature at Farnham Castle to VSOs who were going to Africa and different parts of the world to develop. And for the first time, I was then exposed to the fact that there were developers and then they wanted writers to come to talk to them. One of the things that was fascinating was um, they did not know how much writing Africans have actually done. So one of my jobs was to suggest to them, before you go to Africa, whichever part of Africa you're going, find out how many writers there are. Because you're going not only to enjoy the writing that Africans have written, but most of your development will probably have already been discussed by African writers. And that might enrich your um, idea of what it is that you're going to develop. So, LAC, after this paper, I said, not only do I agree, I agree totally with everything that this paper has done. It has actually, I said here, I find this paper challenging, engaging, inspiring, if a little obvious. <laughs> In general, I find most interdisciplinary treatment of human knowledge revealing and intriguing. Um, if I very quickly look at the paper itself, I was fascinated by the title, the, 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 the deliberate ambiguity of the fiction of development, <laughs> where fiction not only means uh, 
novels and so on and so forth. But it is fiction. Development is a huge fiction. And then I, my mind was uh, went back to the time when developers and fiction writers, especially in Africa, tended to be in conflict. I remember about seven years ago attending a seminar stroke conference at Northwestern University in the U.S., where African writers were reacting very strongly against IMF um, programs that of development of Africa, um, among other things. And Dennis Brutus, who sadly, as I understand, recently passed, stood up and says, I'm sorry, can everybody give their affiliation? And we all gave where we came from, except one man. And Dennis Brutus says, the reason why I said everybody should give their affiliation is because this man, I know where he comes from. He has been sent by IMF. He has come, we have had this seminar in three various places in the U.S. universities, and he has now followed us at North Western University. What is your role? And would you believe it? Dennis Protest was strong enough to actually embarrass him into leaving the room. <laughs> the point is, developers have always been suspicious of writers, whether they need not be suspicious of writers. Um, a few points then, very quick ones. The definition of fiction in this paper, I notice, I notice includes novels, poetry, plays, and so on. Um, I'm suggesting it might be revealing if we included non-fiction writings, such as memoirs, and what the French call witness writing. And this is my pet subject because I teach literatures of incarceration. I've been teaching that for some time at Leeds and Newcastle, and now I'm um, um, doing, I have already done a book on uh, prison writings from Africa based on this. A lot can be gathered from these areas. Um, so I find the examination of the fiction of, the develop of development exemplified by the novels that have been chosen in this paper um, on the one hand and on the other the World Bank or World Bank documentation I find all that right I agree with everything that this paper has said it hasn't in fact said enough for me everything is right is true, is valid as I suggested if, if rather obvious I have one problem. I find the fiction of the novel to be different from the fiction of the poem. Um, uh, and putting the poem alongside novel is good. But if you 
if you follow that path, I hope you can um, follow where I, where, where I disagree. And I'm going to illustrate that point in a minute. Um, what is missing in this paper seems to me to be, I do not, um, it's not really missing, it's there, but uh, perhaps later on it can be emphasized. Is the joy and enjoyment that one gets from reading fiction versus the pain and suffering <laughs> <laughs> that is sometimes de depicted. Um, I'm thinking of um, what Susan Sontag once called uh, considering the pain of others. Um, static literature so that you look, there is a pain in development um, which you must follow. Um, we can talk about that one over a drink probably. Um, when we talk of the fiction of development, I often wonder whose fiction, whose development we are talking about, and on whose terms. How honestly the pain of those meant to be developed is depicted, and how much self-interest the donors, developers, masters of development or aid, etc., how much of the self-interest is subterranean. So I'm going to ask, um, well, before I conclude, I'm not going to conclude, uh, I'm going to conclude with a poem. I hope you don't mind. First of all, so whose fiction, whose development, for what type of human knowledge, which is the academic thing, and on whose terms? I'm going to give um, a short illustration. I hope, Mr. Chairman, you won't mind. give you the following real scenario. An African government which is not blessed with diamonds or gold or other minerals has a beautiful lake with golden sanded beaches. To, go to, to get foreign exchange, it is encouraged to develop tourism. It sells its beaches to bank managers, executive officers, company directors, ambassadors, and high commissioners and others. Some have come from the developed world. Ordinary mortals who occupy the beaches are persuaded to move higher up. The developers will offer them boreholes for clean water, they'll build schools for them and clinics. And then they'll be offered land which they can turn into farms 
which they can buy fertilizers in order to grow much better food or more of it. Meanwhile, the executives, ambassadors, directors, and others invite their friends from abroad, some of them, to visit them. They should not worry about staying in the country's hotels. They will stay in their cottages for free. Each cottage has its own beach, some fenced from intruding locals, the locals who have meanwhile been prohibited from bathing and washing their clothes from the beaches of their lake. These must go elsewhere. You can imagine what happens. You have a government, you have developers, and the people have been moved out. I'm now going to I've given you a scenario or a context for the following poem. These people have been told there is development coming and the women are protesting because they've been thrown away from their land. And one of the things they're doing spending their time picking baobab fruit. So this poem is called Baobab Fruit Picking or Development in Monkey Bay. What I'm trying to do is to find out what the developers would do if they read a poem like this, if they really cared about reading fiction or poetry and so on because the trouble with them is most of them don't care. All they want, they want to go there with their own views of development and they have a mindset. And it's that mindset which is dangerous. So there's a woman here who says, we fought before, but this is worse than rape. In the semi-Sahara October haze, the raw jokes of Balamanja women are remarkable. The vision we revel in has sent their husbands to the mines of Joburg to buy us large farms, she insists. But here, the wives survive by their wits and sweat, shoving dead cassava stalks into rocks, Catching fish with tired Chitenji clothes with kids, picking baobab fruit and whoring. The bark from the baobab trunk they strip into strings for their reed water. The fruit they crack, scoop out the white, mix with goat milk. That's porridge for, for today, children. The shell is drinking gold, or firewood split. They used to grate the hard cores into girls' initiation oil ones. But you imported the boars who visited our chief at dawn, promising boars. These pine cottages on the beach shot up instead. 
some with barbed wire fences 50 yards into the lake. What cheek! Now each weekend, the blighted tomato thighs in reeking loincloths come boating, grinning at them baobab fruit picking. My house was right here. Whoever dares, check those Palapancha dreamers. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, I think we're now going to perhaps take a few questions from the audience. Um, there's some microphones. We have a gentleman over there. Start off with one down here, and then after that there. Hi. Um, that was all very interesting, and I think that the reason why this is an interesting topic is because if there were policy papers that were going to change the world, then it would have already sort of happened, and there's almost too much analytical information without really enough fiction or art or something that makes policymakers actually realize that the arrogance that a lot of development is uh, imbued with and the... Uh, the sense that, yeah, we have all the answers and doubt isn't, isn't really present. But a lot of what you were saying about issues and uh, development issues is quite boring in terms of fiction. If you uh, bang on about sort of worthy subjects, it doesn't make for a very good book. So do you think that fiction has the power to educate people about specific issues or do you think it's just more that you can use it as a way to inspire a bit of doubt and reflection about some of the difficult issues that development throws up? Um, I suggest that we get a couple of questions and then I'll canvas the speakers as to who wants to answer to what. We had another over here.
Shall I start with that one? Um, one of the things we have not talked about, and uh, which <coughs> I think the paper will probably, at a later stage, discover, is um, the role of dictators in these things. Um, the trouble with Malawi is that um, the period you're talking about, we were not even allowed to read stuff that was being published in, uh, in neighboring countries, and it was dangerous to, to read um, those things. And so we have uh, built a culture in Malawi of not, not finding reading as, as exciting because it has not been encouraged. So you will not find my poems being read because my first book of poems was banned. It was not, not actually banned. They said it was withdrawn from circulation. And there was a difference between withdrawing from circulation and banning. Um, so there is the political side to the story, which is what you're raising. And um, although the political side of the story is relevant and invalid, I would like to suggest that other African countries um, do have writers who are not banned and governments that allow um, people to read the, their, their writers uh, and so on and so forth. So those developers ought to take advantage of and um, find out um, NGOs and so on. Whoever is going there, there is literature there. But also if um, the literature that has been published or writings that Malawians, for instance, in exile have written. If there is nothing of, of that sort in Malawi, find out if there is anything from neighboring countries because the problems will be the same. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the, the speaker mentioned the <coughs> problems of issues based fiction that it could be dull or leaden or uh, um, placard carrying, and that's certainly true. But part of the job of the novelist is to individuate these issues, to enliven them, to dramatize. Uh, and that's part of the communicative power of storytelling, and that's what can change minds. Now, the total social effect is, is probably incalculable. Um, both, you know, uh, who knows how quickly stories change things, but we do know that things change and that stories have been a part of that. Um, but I don't, I don't think the, you know, the, the literary side of it and the development side of it need be seen in, in polar terms. I mean, one of the things fic uh, literature can do is, because of its mixed modes, is alert you to scales and dimensions that hadn't been previously considered. And it's the same kind of uh, interruption by unknown scales, unknown dimensions, that tends to um, uh, uh, cause development programs to fail or to, be, to slow down or to go in completely different uh, ways than their devisers had expected. Uh, and I think this, this is quite an important point. It's about uh, seeing something that your particular discourse, your particular approach, your particular point of view, a novelistic term, had not taken into account. And, and, that, and that's another 
useful side of storytelling. So I think you know these two things are coming together, and you can clearly see that issues of bias and, uh, in, in a development academic sense and issues of perspective in terms of storytelling. There is a kind of relationship. So these these things need to be considered in their in, in a uniform way, I'd say. Okay, I think there's several other questions. Um, I have two down here and the person at the back of there. Um, let me see, I have one there. Okay. Um, the two are at the front here, there's Mr. No, Mr. Yeah, I'll come back to you in the next round. Thank you. Very, very fascinating. Um, we, I'm James Putzlaw. I wrote to you and, and, uh, earlier, and I, I'm really delighted to hear. I think that in terms of the question this paper posed, Mr. Mapanje, and Ms. is it working? Mr. P Mapanje answered it. I mean, listening to the poems tells me we should put your poem on our reading list uh, immediately. But I wanted to raise question, when we hear, when we see the written word, um, is, this, is this an elite voice, usually? Just a different elite voice, not, not trained in economics, having gone you know, on an IMF scholarship to study abroad, but a literary voice that's an elite voice. Not, and does that matter? You know, Ozami, uh, um, Usman Sanbeni, Senegal at some point abandoned writing and started making films in Wolof in order to communicate um, with, with his people. So that's one part of the question. The second part is is that elite voice in the poorest countries in many parts of sub-Saharan Africa where, the, where we had a lot of development insight that said we should invest in primary education if there's anything to invest at all in education. And the universities have been decimated across sub-Saharan Africa. Does that kill the the, the, the vibrancy of, of, of literary voices in the poorest countries, denying them to us and also to people inside? Imagination. 
Okay, and then we give an opportunity to anyone to move in for um, actually, I, I wanted to comment on the first two questions. It's, it's, it's an intriguing one, partly because I think it seems to come up and um, increasingly more often. The idea of the elite, a different elite, not a social science elite, but um, aren't novelists, um, especially for those of us from India, especially who write in English, um, at least in the UK, we are considered the elite. Um, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, frankly. Um, my grandmother never went to school. She was educated at home. Does that make me an elite? She taught herself to read by learning the alphabet and then forced herself to read the Ramayana in Hindi. In, and she decided that when she was done, she would know how to read. It took her about four years, but she learned how to read. Um, does that make me elite? I come from a village where we haven't had um, running water until after 10 years after I was born. The drains were dug when we were kids by us during summer vacations. Where do we count? Um, because I sit here at LSE, do I count as an elite? Part of my problem with that question is that somehow implicit somewhere in that is a dismissal of those of us who work very hard to present our stories to a world, frankly, that doesn't often listen to us. People like India mediated through East End, Brick Lane, for example, Bradford, Manchester. People don't really want to talk about rural India written by somebody who's from there. You really want to talk about caste wars? Do you want to talk about how people have changed? Do you want to talk about how the person who had no hope of anything, who was born at the same time as I, now has two sons who have gone to university? That is a change that has happened in my lifetime. I think when issues of who is the elite comes up, especially for those of us, who count as from being the developing world, um, it really becomes a very personal issue. Um, it's just, you know, until 10 years ago, it was deracination. That was the one, that was the, the, the question that would get thrown out. This time, and I'm sorry, I don't know how to mince words. Um, now it's about being elite. Um, I really don't know. I also think when, I, when my books are sold in India, they're affordable. They're 200 rupees. Most college students can afford that. Um, which means most people read it. When I write in English, because it makes sure that people from Tamil Nadu as well as Bengal and Nagaland can read it, as opposed to writing in Hindi, which is my language. <coughs> so I think, those, I think certain questions of how literature travels, again, as I said earlier, who writes it, um, have to be, be very carefully considered before we throw out. And I realize we're at LSE and there's very specific sense of what counts as elite. And believe me, I do realize this is very much the elite. Um, but I think those, those need to be mediated and in a sense considered as relative. David, I think you wanted to jump in. Yeah, thanks. There are lots of interesting questions. And uh, I just wanted to make a couple of very quick points. One, I think, is that part of what we're talking about here is about narratives and power. And if we say that um, you know, policy, development policy, for example, is very often based on numbers, I think that's only part of the story because behind those numbers are narratives. 
And when we talk about, say, the narrative of corruption underpinned by numbers, um, you know, we're talking about the need to broaden those narratives and to look at competing narratives. Um, and I think what's interesting about policy is that policy very often works on the basis of stories. I mean, of course, there are many other things feeding into policy, but when you hear a story, a simple story, uh, you know, policy favours simple stories. So when you hear, for example, a story like, you know, broken windows policing, that's a narrative about how you do something about law and order which has travelled from New York to Europe to parts of the developing world all based on a very simple story that if you fix the small things the big thing, you know, larger crimes are not uh, you know, are less likely you know, to take place and of course that story we now know is, isn't really based in very much fact but it's a very powerful story so I think part of what we're talking about is how if we look at fiction we, you know, we broaden the range of stories and we produce competing narratives that challenge you know, dominant narratives and that's very important uh, for policy and I think one of the interesting things about uh, some of the books that surprised us like A Fine Balance when we were you know, discussing and thinking about this, you know, this uh, topic the surprising thing about A Fine Balance is that it's a book about a very miserable subject. I mean, it's a book about grinding poverty and inequality and you know, repressive states and you know, all kinds of things. But it's a gripping read. But not only that, it was, you know, it's been a massively successful book. I mean, it's you know, read by a lot of people. And one can argue about who those people are. Obviously, it's an elite audience. But I think that there's a level of you know, democratization in the way in which ideas about uh, global poverty, inequality, development may be, may be taking place through the way in which you know, development as a very powerful and contested organising idea is being broadened and, uh, and represented in different ways. Okay, before I hand over to Giles to answer Anna's question, I just want to make one quick comment, which is one of the things which comes out here is just as in development... There's a very powerful discourse. There's no such thing as blueprint development, that there's no one-size-fits-all solution. I think the same applies to fiction. I mean, a lot of the, whether it's in terms of the genre, whether it's poetry or novels and so on, but also in terms of the audience. I mean, there's, no, there's never going to be the one novel which everybody is going to read and everybody's going to take on board in the same way. So I think we're talking about trying to create an environment in which people actually take on board that there are other forms of representation which are useful and interesting to look at, but they're not, you know, they're not um, exclusive either. Okay, I'll jump in. Yeah, I'll just jump, jump in with one little uh, comment about the narratives. Um, <clears throat> there's also an area which is the oral area. The song, for instance. Um, in, if you're talking about Africa, some of the songs that ordinary singers Say they talk about latest development, they mock it, they laugh at it, and so on. And these two become interesting, um, if you like, fiction of development um, to the extent that the elitism thing which comes in um, might be irrelevant. 
In other words, we're not talking about every aspect of the matter. For instance, language, we have not talked about language and local language versus European languages and so on. So if a fiction is coming in, in local languages, is it coming in foreign languages and who is going to be the reader and this sort of thing. It's all intricately sort of um, intertwined. Um, but we must know that what the paper was talking about is the written um, form rather and, and mostly because it's English. But there is a whole world of unwritten or sung form. Um, in Malawi two years ago, a singer was, I think two or three years ago, a singer was killed mysteriously because his, the message of his song was so powerful at mocking the corruption of not only NGOs but also of government and IMF wishes and all this sort of thing. Um, so that too is a fiction which is very interesting to develop. Yeah, the, the same same thing happened, I think, in Mauritius, a reggae singer called Kaya, um, responding to social issues in the same way. Um, you asked me uh, how I feel about having uh, 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 real characters in, in or historical figures in my books. Uh, uh, certainly, it, it's something that I've thought a lot about, and the I tend to think of these characters as being in inverted commas. They stand for, uh, not necessarily for the individual concern, but for a, a type, an archetype. Uh, although I can remember being faintly amused when, when the people made the film of Last King of Scotland that the, the studio wanted to buy the life rights to Idi Amin, which would not mind to, to, <laughs> to give them. Uh, uh, I mean, it's kind of, kind of crazy collision of worlds there um, but it doesn't raise a, another issue which is the expectation that, that literature should be dutiful or uh, follow the same kind of proprieties that um, uh, academic disciplines might follow and I think you know that's never going to quite work because Storytelling, in part, depends on a lack of dutifulness, in part, but also a commitment to truth. It's those two things aren't, you know, the power of stories oscillates between those two um, poles. Uh, and really, the, you know, the mo most significant part of it is that uh, the story moves the reader and, and, uh, or, or the audience. And I think that the, the question who made the point about audience, I think that's very, very significant. It's a question of relevance, really. And I wonder whether there's a way, a new way of writing academic papers that would uh, think about the sort of end user, uh, who, who this is for. And that's certainly something writers are always doing, thinking about generating effects in readers' heads. Okay, we have about ten minutes left. So there are at least three people who had questions. I'm going to take five questions in total, but I'd like people to be very succinct, and then I'll give everybody a chance to respond to them. So we have person over there in the blue, blue top. 
Thank you. Um, my name is Enrique Mendizabal from the Overseas Development Institute. Um, I think these, my point came out almost right at the end, the two interventions by Jack and, uh, and Giles. And it's to do with purpose. And it seems to me that the conversation here is about the purpose of the development industry. But what I think is more interesting is the badly named development, which is really just reality, the state at w in which countries are or societies are. And let me, I'm looking at this from a Latin American perspective, and I, if, I, I had a conversation with David about this once uh, a long time ago. If you want to understand Peru, you might read three books about indigenous people by um, uh, Ciro Alegría, about, about middle class by Vargas Llosa, and about the upper class by Bryce Chenique. But they were not written to promote anything. They're written to tell a story about what was, what is. And if you want to understand Latin America, you might read um, Garcia Marquez, which is not actually what happens, but it's what happens. It actually happens. We don't talk to dead people, but we do. And that is the, the point of that. And I wonder if we're trying to force fiction, just as we sometimes try to force academic and scientific research to give it a purpose. And it's good scientific research when it's scientific research. And it's good fiction or it's good art when it's art. And art, unlike scientific research, must be personal. It must be the author's making rather than, say, you know, the, the, the academic who can write in third person plural and pretend that they didn't actually have an opinion. Um, so I wonder if we're pushing that, and I wonder uh, what the reaction of the, of the authors or the, if they the write some of this. When I uh, booked for this talk with my mother, we weren't actually sure what to expect with the question mark at the end. But I am really glad that I've come and it's really stimulating. And um, I wondered if I could just have a bit of fun with you for a bit, because we've got all these powerful people here who are really quite influential. And um, Mr. Fodden did actually say that, um, you know, the kind of genres don't need to be separated, like fiction and non-fiction and things like that. And I was wondering, with all these powerful people here, if you were to kind of like have a, a kind of united website or a committee that would do something, what would, what would that committee or website be called and what would be its missions or united aims? If, I mean, do you think you can unite? I think that's a question as well. actually work with uh, a radio initiative that uh, that works to try to get a wide variety of perspectives and questions on justice um, in, in selected African countries. And I was wondering how you think it might be possible to give a wider voice to people who might not otherwise be able to express their voices in, in literature um, in the way that people who are professional writers would be able to do. Thank you. I'm just going to take one more question, but otherwise we won't. Yeah, hang on, so we won't have time to cut around. So I think we'll leave it for that. Thank you. Um, I'm actually doing a development economics course here this year, and I think it's wonderful how um, actually development analysts here do have a very nuanced understanding of the developing world. Um, on the other hand, I think now um, fiction writers are beginning to sort of fall prey either to um, sort of patronizing Joan maybe or um, 
to commercialization, what would you what would you say about the sensational appeal, maybe of, of uh, the fiction of development or the publishing culture, which is breeding this commercialization? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, why don't we start with Jack? I'm sorry. Um, give you a minute if you want to reply, or if you want to, I can start with David, who's been scribbling away. Um, <laughs> so you've already prepared. So. You've got a minute, have I? You've got a minute, no, basically, I'll just to take try and answer some questions or give a general summary. Let me take a couple of things. The point about the website. Um, I mean, one of, one of our starting points, I think, from our paper really was that we thought academics write really badly. And so let's you know, send them on some writing courses and let's try and improve the quality of writing. Same is true of the way in which policy reports and things are written. I think that would be my, you know, my simple rejoinder for a... You know, for action. Um, I think the other issue, I suppose, is just a general one about how one of the things that's come out of the questions is that development means many different things to many different kinds of people. So this kind of multi-vocality that's needed, we need, we need to have multiple voices and representations, and that's why I think none of these, none of these kinds of texts, I think, are necessarily any better than others. There's bad fiction, there's good fiction, there's you know, good policy, there's bad policy. Uh, there's bad research, good research. So, you know, I think we, we I wouldn't want to sort of you know, fall into the thing of saying, well, all the novels are great and what they say is really real and what, you know, what researchers write or what policy, what the World Bank writes is all completely wrong. But I think if we can have more voices, that's good. If that doesn't sound too wishy-washy a way to end. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. All right. Um, I'll start with the website question because I think that's fast. Um, frankly, most writers can't agree with themselves. So forget about trying to put more than one writer in the same place. Um, so I don't think that would work at all. Um, also, I don't think most writers are very influential. So that's the other thing, the reality of our, you know, of our times. Um, I hope so. Makes me feel better. Um, I think I'm going to go to what you said about forcing fiction. I don't think any, at least, I, well, let me rephrase it. I don't write fiction of development. I write what I see, what I think, feel strongly about. There is a development aspect to it because I'm from a country that has transformed itself in less than 60 years. So it just, it's part of my reality. So I think you're right. You know, we don't we don't write about development, and I don't think you should. You know, novelists should be writing, you know, novels about development at all. Um, I think we should just write about humans. Uh, but that's just my opinion. Um, I think you're right. There's a huge amount of sensationalism, and which is why I'd mentioned Slumdog Millionaire. Um, I think um, certain things fly. People like watching. I'm not sure why watching a person from the slums is a feel-good movie, but that's just me. Um, uh, but yeah, I think there are, as David said, multiple voices. I think the more voices that get heard, the better it is. And finally, I do want to pick up on something that Jack said, and I think there was a question about um, how to give voices. Um, Jack mentioned um, songs. Funny enough, um, many of you would turn around and go, Bollywood? Um, isn't that a bit kitschy and trash? Well, for 100 years, they've been producing films about development, about political issues, about social issues that average people can go in and learn from. That's voice of the people. Um, so I don't think you have to read a big book 
Um, it doesn't have to win a book prize to, to have a real point of view. Um, I think that voices are available if you look for them, um, whether through song or poetry or films or um, take your pick. Um, well, of course, there's no substitute, as I'm sure uh, many of you here would say, for, for proper measurement of things, for proper data measuring real problems. And one would never want to overstate the sort of diagnostic power of a novel, whether written by someone from outside a country or someone within it. Um, and at the same time, there's this value of, of subjective individual experience. Uh, on the issue of commercialisation, uh, a lot of writers would say there's just frankly not enough commercialisation. <laughs> um, but uh, in a way, it's, it's tricky because you can't have it both ways. There are issues that need uh, public recognition and, and change from policymakers and others. Uh, and putting them in such a way as to make people take notice often involves a kind of coarsening or simplification uh, and, and this is something that needs to, this is part of the kind of relevance question that people need to judge, people telling stories, the novelists as, as much as uh, um, those working in development need, need to judge, you know, what how far can I go in reducing this to three strong images or uh, a short Story about what will happen if you do this, or what will happen if you do that. You know, every time, every every time you're moving into language, you're dealing with these issues of simplification, uncertainty, instability, um, and commercialization is sort of, and sensationalism is part of that difficulty. Um, very briefly, I think there was a question which I may have misunderstood there, but my my answer was going to be like this. Um, you must allow some of us who are academics and uh, discovering that our academic work is dull. Um, you must allow us to bring in um, as much information <laughs> to chair this thing as we possibly can. And um, for instance, um, recently there's been a lot of discussion of post-colonial writing, in and human rights and international law and I have added to it literatures of incarceration and creative writing all these are coming as it were together so do allow us <laughs> do allow us to experiment with our own disciplines mm -hmm. um, so that uh, we can in inculcate other disciplines and, and cheer up our disciplines um, I just want to exercise the chance to make two final concluding points, which is academia is not immune to the kind of commercial imperatives of sensationalism, and the commercial imperatives, fine, few academics become rich on their publications, but they have other imperatives, the imperative of citation, make sure that you talk about this theory and your citation index will go up. And sensationalism, well, let's just put it this way, I work on gangs. My titles, my, the titles of my articles are things like Living in the Shadow of Death or Joining the Gang. It's, um, sensationalism does also help your citation index. And let me just leave you with one thing. It's a thought, it's a kind of thought that was articulated by Mar Mario Vargallosa in a recent interview where he was asked about, well, you know, 
yeah, novels, you know, they often tell untruths. And he answered, yes, you know, novels do lie, but men do not live by truth alone. We also need lies. And sometimes this is perhaps the best advantage that literature has for us. So perhaps you could join me in holding our panel. And <laughs> and can I invite you all to have a drink?